Welcome everybody to the London Aesthetics Forum and our final meeting of the term. Uh, I'd just like to do a couple of things before we start. The first uh, is to thank the British Society of Aesthetics for their generous support of the forum uh, and the second to say a few words about our speaker for today, Murray Smith. Uh, Murray is Professor in Film Studies at the University of Kent and he's well known for his work in the philosophy of film uh, where he's dealt with topics including imagination, uh, emotional response, point of view and empathy. Uh, among Murray's publications are the uh, BFI Guide to Train Spotting, I believe, uh, and the book Engaging Characters, as well as, I think, three edited collections on philosophy and cinema, and on top of that, uh, very many journal articles, I'm sure you're familiar with some of them. Uh, at the moment, I, I think Murray's working on a, a couple of research projects, uh, some to do with how issues in aesthetics can be illuminated by the evolutionary stories behind our human dispositions, uh, and another to do with with sound in film and related media. But today, uh, he's here to talk to us about transparency and reflexivity in film. So thanks very much, Murray. Oh, thank you for that very generous introduction, Emily. Now, now I know why I feel so busy if I'm doing yeah. all of those, those things. Um, okay, yes, thank you also to, well, to Martin and to whoever else may have been responsible for <laughs> inviting me to this uh, series. So I'm very pleased to be here. Um, uh, and uh, well, I guess an initial uh, remark uh, that I can uh, that I can make uh, by way of context, uh, as you just heard from Emily, uh, you know, historically and still uh, officially speaking, my sort of home discipline. Film studies, but as my career has gone on, you know, more and more of my research and audience is to be found in this kind of space with uh, aestheticians, um, which sounds like a kind of you know nice cosmopolitan thing, kind of moving between two you know, two distinct um, academic communities. It's more apt to, to induce schizophrenia, I think, rather than having that kind of pleasurable uh, cosmopolitan quality. But um, uh, the real point of saying that is just to say that it's that, that I'm often in danger in talks like this of um, uh, you know not assuming enough background in relation, in this case, to as it were, the film-specific side of things, um, uh, and um, assuming too much uh, on the other side of the uh, equation. So. Uh, uh, if I bore you with too much detail in some respects and not give enough in other respects, I apologise for that uh, in advance. Okay, so, um, as you can see, as you know, the, the title of this talk is Transparency and Reflexivity in Film. Um, here's a kind of outline of uh, roughly what I plan to uh, speak about today. Um, to begin with, the, the most general remark. Um, uh, there's a sort of standing assumption, certainly in, uh, in film studies and the history of, of film theory, that um, transparency and reflexivity as properties that a moving image can possess, and I'll talk about both of those things more obviously in a few seconds, but that they are in some sense opposed to each other. So, so that for um, a moving image to have a strongly transparent character, 
is to exclude any reflexive properties that we may have and vice versa, right? So that's kind of a thumbnail sketch of a very orthodox and long-standing idea, at least in the study of film and probably beyond that as well. But that's, as it were, where I can make the claim most confidently. Now, I don't say that that claim is uh, completely wrong-headed or completely um, void, but it's, the claim is, the, the thrust of the argument is that it's, it's too simple. Okay? Um, so, uh, the thrust of today's talk is to complicate that received wisdom about the supposed opposition between transparency as one kind of property that a moving image, or still image for that matter, may possess, and reflex, the reflexive property on the other hand. Okay, so uh, as you can see, the arc of the talk is I'll talk uh, a bit more specifically about reflexivity and metafiction of related motion in just a second. Then I'll say a bit more about the role that reflexivity is uh, said to play in relation to our appreciation and understanding of um, of films. Then I'll turn really to what is the, the core of the talk, at least the core of the talk in its most uh, detailed technical manifestation. Right? So it's when we get to part three, transparency and reflexivity in film, that things get most fine-grained in terms of the claims I'll be making. And then we'll come up for air at the end, uh, and hopefully I'll be able to say something about how the way we should think about uh, reflexivity um, and its value and properties should be reconceived somewhat once we've gone through uh, part three in particular. Okay, so first of all, uh, let's have a working characterization of reflexivity. Um, so what I mean by re reflexivity um, is the property exhibited by a representation when it points back to itself in some fashion, thereby heightening our awareness of its status as an artifact. So a reflexive representation is one which draws our attention to its own artifactuality, that is to say, its, its status as a product of design. And that's really just kind of trying to articulate what I take to be the uh, accepted orthodox understanding of what it is for an image, at least a filmic image, to uh, possess the quality of reflexivity. Obviously that's dependent in turn on an idea drawn from linguistics, but I won't be dwelling upon that connection. Now, metafiction. Um, um, I'm going to blame Emily for the uh, presence of uh, the <laughs> metafiction here, um, because the origin of this, this paper, some of you may know, was a conference that uh, Emily uh, hosted in Cambridge about six months ago, um, in which uh, not only the term reflexivity, but the term metafiction uh, figured prominently. So for the purposes of that conference, I felt obliged to kind of work in some kind of... Uh, explicit place for the notion of metafiction, but it's not forced. I mean, it has an important place in relation to re reflexivity, but it's a secondary um, place as far as really the kind of uh, focus of this paper is concerned. So, so I'm not going to be dwelling on it. I just make a few remarks on it uh, here. So I am using the term metafiction to pick out uh, 
fictions which in some sense are about themselves. And I have some examples in a second of such fictions. Um, uh, and I treat, or I think of metafiction in that sense um, uh, as one route to reflexivity. In other words, one particular way in which uh, filmic representation can heighten uh, our uh, appreciation of its status as an artifact. Not the only way, but it's one way it can do that. But let me note in passing also that um, we really ought to think of uh, metafiction, which is, in certain quarters at least, it's a fairly commonplace idea. There's quite a big literature on the idea of metafiction, which at one point was very fashionable. Um, we should think of that really as a subtype of a larger category of representations, namely meta-representations. I think that's worth saying because there's a very interesting uh, tradition of, roughly speaking, documentaries or non-fictions which have this meta-representational character as well. So for the sake of time, I'm not going to talk about all three of those examples there, but I'll say a little bit about the first one, which is a famous example. So Chronicle of Osama is uh, a documentary film uh, from 1960, and it's about a group of Parisians. And what makes it unusual and distinctive amongst documentaries is that in the final part of the film, the subjects, in other words, the Parisians who are interviewed right, uh, for the body of this film, are then shown edited footage that's been shot of them being interviewed and part of the film becomes their reactions to that sort of first order footage that's been shot of them. Right? So that's the sense in which it becomes a, a meta-documentary or a meta-representational non-fiction. And similar things can be said about those other examples. Okay, so um, maybe that was less familiar to you. Uh, let's, let's bring it back to what you're more likely to have some uh, some uh, familiarity with some metafictions. So I just mentioned a couple of examples here. Um, famous one from 1963, Goddard's Contempt. A couple of stills here from uh, the opening sequence of the film, where we actually see a camera on a on a track gradually moving towards. Um, so it's the our position and ending with the camera kind of dipping down and looking into the camera, which is the camera shooting the shot. Okay, so it starts off with this very reflexive gesture right at the beginning. And just to note in passing that um, you know that tradition is still alive. I won't necessarily say it's alive and well. Uh, <laughs> And that's not, not to cast aspersions on uh, Lars von Trier, who made this film the boss of it all. It's a very, it's a very um, striking and amusing film. All I mean is, is that, you know, um, uh, metafictions were kind of a very prominent part of what you might call the heroic era of European art cinema, the 1960s. And that era has clearly kind of long passed. But there is a sort of ongoing practice of metafictional reflexive fictions coming out of Europe and this would be a recent example so I hope you can make out there that's Lars von Trier on a crane 
right, at the beginning of the film, commenting on the fact that you're about to watch this comedy which he's written, etc., etc. Right? So it sets up a very explicit um, metafictional frame for us. Now, part of the orthodox story, okay, that I began by citing, by way of saying, this is what I want to, in some measure, challenge. In other words, the orthodox opposition between transparency and reflexivity. Part of that orthodox story is that um, so-called classical films, again, roughly that means films coming out of the Hollywood tradition or the Hollywood style tradition, right? So that would refer as much to um, popular films coming out of, out of national cinemas, which still observe the sort of stylistic um, constraints and features of Hollywood films. But such films um, exhibit uh, very little reflexivity, uh, and we find it in much more pronounced form uh, in uh, the traditions of the art form going back to figures like Godard and continued by figures like Lars von Trier. Now, um, that's way too simple a story. Okay, so again, that's not going to be kind of the heart of my talk today. We're still kind of in the, in the, in the, in the, the scene setting here. But um, uh, let me sh show, you, sh show you a little bit of um, evidence or a couple of clips to support uh, this part of the claim, which is to say that we do find you know, quite a lot of reflexivity in classical filmmaking. Right? So I've got one, one recent example here. This is from, I think it's Ocean's 12. I always forget which of the Ocean's films I'm talking about here. I think this is Ocean's 12, which was uh, a critically reviled film, but I feel it's kind of found its raison d'etre in, in, in my paper. So it does nothing else. It, 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 it's very useful here. So I think all, all, all I'll say by way of context is that, in case you don't know anything about this series of films, you know, they're heist films, okay? So the little bit of action we're going to see here involves the gang um, uh, involved in the heist. This includes Matt Damon and Julia Roberts um, engaged in one sort of stage of the heist. And um, I'm forgetting her name, this actress, so remind me. She's, um, she's one of the police, okay? So that's probably all you need to know to get... A at least a kind of taste of the, the joke that this scene articulates. So, should we try the lights, Martin? We'll risk it all? Okay. Well, she can't touch it. She's a movie star. She's not the Pope, for Christ's sake. Okay, you're from Smyrna, Georgia. You were born in 1967. Your, your middle name is Fiona. Uh, you've got ten dogs. You've got seven no, horses. Your favorite color is horses. There's more horses than dogs. I just can't. That's where I'm trying to take like Julia. Okay, but no, no, no. We understand you're feeling a little insecure. That is totally natural. That's good, actually, because you're playing an actress. They're all insecure. No, I'm not insecure. I'm freaking out. Yes. Someone who's out there somewhere. It's too personal. 
more personal than you're asking doing 25 to life. Right, we all know doing 25 to life, okay? Okay. All right, can we try the lights, Martin? Right, so, <laughs> in case the joke wasn't apparent, um, uh, the idea is, is that uh, the character played by Julia Roberts is going to pretend that she is Julia Roberts in order to advance the cause of the heist in the fiction that the film tells. Okay? So there's a sort of neat little kind of white circle uh, sketched by the film there. Um, uh, now, these are all stills from uh, elsewhere in the same film. Um, I should also note in passing that I'm using the term self-consciousness um, synonymously with the idea of reflexivity. Okay? And again, I'm just observing what I take to be, so to speak, ordinary practice uh, in the relevant uh, disciplines. Maybe it's a misstep. I don't know. But uh, just to note that that's what I'm doing. So, just to give you a sense of other ways in which the film exhibits a high degree of self-consciousness or reflexivity, just look at the visual texture, right, in various ways. That, so you've got these kind of very um, strong, so to speak, compositions, pronounced kind of blocking and symmetry of figures in the frame, striking use of focus, camera tipped on its side, and you also get this play with transitions so every time there is, well, maybe not every time, but certainly there is a deliberate attempt to make the transition from one scene to another very greatly. Right? So you get this kind of slat effect in that case, but sometimes it's a regular dissolve, sometimes it's other kind of geometrical patterns. The point is, it never settles down. Right? So uh, most transitions are different to the ones that precede it. They're not like ones you've seen earlier in the film. So you're constantly being made aware of the fact that, oh, there's a new bit of visual design, a new strategy that the film is using. And of course, we've got this variation between black and white and colour there as well. So all sorts of shenanigans going on with uh, the visual texture uh, of the film. Now, you might say, again, this is kind of uh, part of the orthodox story, um, well, of course, that's Ocean's 12. And we know that Ocean's 12 is, you know, exhibit A in the Museum of Postmodernism. In other words, what you're really talking about, Smith, is just a symptom of the last, you know, 15, 20, 30 years, however you want to define the so-called postmodern period. That's why this example is important. So I'm going to show you a quick clip from a rather older film, one that you're unlikely to have encountered unless you're a film studies nerd or a film buff. So this is a Joan Crawford film. It's very close to the beginning. Just going to watch a couple of minutes of action from the tail end of the credits into the sort of beginning of the dramatic action. Okay. Okay, yes, go for it. <laughs>
said they'd 11,811 cabs operating in New York City. Now they're less than 10,000. Okay, you won the case. Right now, every New York cab has to take care of 1,156 people. I said you won the case. Do you have to convert me, too? Hey, keep it. Okay, um, so, again, uh, just to make sure that uh, everyone you know, got it. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, the striking feature, or one striking feature of that, that scene then, is what happens with music, right? So, um, you're hearing what you take to be the score, right? Kind of you know, familiar orchestral score over the credits. And it continues as the action begins, and uh, we see the Donna Andrews character go up to the apartment, and then he takes the music off, he stops the music. So the music has kind of made a transition, oddly, from being, we film studies people would call, uh, non-diegetic sound, uh, to diegetic sound, sound which, which we take to be emanating from the space. But it's done it so subtly that it's kind of a surprise arguably a kind of joke. Um, so um, that, that, that's, a, that's an example of one way in which, um, uh, again, in which um, uh, a classical film exhibits uh, a reflexive uh, dimension. And the reason, as I say, uh, I wanted to show you an example from this era was to stress the idea that it's not something we just find in films of the last two or three decades. It's something you can trace you know, right back through the history uh, of Hollywood. And indeed, there's one author who talks about the tradition of vulgar modernism, as Jay Hoberman talks about vulgar modernism as a sort of parallel feature of popular re representation um, to high modernism, uh, which is generally where we expect, or again, according to the orthodox story, is where we find uh, reflexivity. But it's there as well in a popular tradition. Sorry? Oh, the film is called Daisy Kenny. Sorry, Daisy Kenny. And I think it's from 1946. So, uh, not long after Mildred Pierce, which has been in the news lately. Okay, right. So, um, I'm going to do a very bad thing now and quote myself. You know you're really kind of on, on the slide when you start referring to yourself. But, um, uh, you know, I just couldn't find anyone who said it quite as well. So I thought, all right, I'm going to have to do this. So, this is really just to kind of flesh out or to try and pin down uh, a little bit further um, the problematic 
uh, assumption which I'm saying is the orthodox assumption. Okay, so this uh, this quote that I'm I'm going to read to you uh, is from a re review I wrote of a book by Carl Plantinger on non-fiction film. So let me just quickly read through it. Um, so this is me, not Plantinger, although it is part of the subject matter of his book, is, is to challenge what I'm talking about. So I say, a tacit assumption of much contemporary theory in relation to both fiction and non-fiction is that reflexive films, films which um, explicitly acknowledge and point back to their own status as a fiction, or at least as a representation, reflexive films are superior to non-reflexive films because the latter are said to foster an illusion of reality or at least present themselves as objective records of reality. Bear in mind this remark is in the context of a discussion of non-fiction film. Right, so obviously we'd have to tweak it if we were going to be talking about fictions, but this stands for non-fictions. Okay, continuing the quote. This argument, in other words, or it's we shouldn't call it an argument, but an assumption. The assumption being that there's something dodgy, epistemically dodgy or suspect about fictions which don't exhibit great reflexivity. This argument depends on a straw man or perhaps three straw men. One for the film itself, which always has reflexive dimensions no matter how realist the film is. One for the spectator who is rather more self-aware than the orthodox theory credits, and one for the body of ideas and intentions standing behind non-reflexive documentaries, which are not characterized in general by the naive realism ascribed to them by proponents of reflexivity. Okay, so um, um, it's this kind of lionization, right, of the heavily reflexive film, whether in the context of fiction or non-fiction filmmaking, that I'm seeking to challenge. That's the kind of big target. And in terms of these three elements, or these three straw men, which I'm saying kind of like work together to give an oversimplified picture of the nature of um, uh, what is taken to be the contrast with reflexive filmmaking, classical filmmaking. It's really the first one that I'm going to focus on today. So the character of the film itself and the extent to which a film can be said to have or to lack uh, uh, the property of reflexiveness. Okay, this is really an analogy, an analogy. Okay, and I don't know if it's a helpful one or not. Um, so the analogy is with an aspect or an argument in the philosophy of mind so there's an argument out there, you'll be much more familiar with this than I am, I'm sure, um, which says that um, uh, our consciousness of the world is always attended by at least some kind of minimal self-consciousness, that is to say an awareness that I am the locus of this experience of the world, right? So that, you know, um, uh, there's a difference between when I'm sitting here um, making my own inner states the focus of my attention when I might be said to be actively introspecting there's a difference between that state and when on the other hand I direct the focus of my attention outwards right, towards distal objects right? so I look at them over there and I focus on 
you know, particular aspects of him. But the point, the point I'm making here is, even when I'm in that kind of a state of attention, right, there is, alongside that, or somehow within it, or combined with it, um, uh, a residual awareness that I am the focus of that experience. Right? It's, not, it's not that self-awareness is completely lost. Okay? Now that's just a quick kind of um, sideways glance into one argument in the philosophy of mind. I'm making a kind of an analogous argument right, about um, um, representations, filmic representations. What I want to say is all filmic representations exhibit some at least minimal degree of reflexivity. Even when uh, uh, they um, uh, they are not highly reflexive in the way those images from the Godard film and the Bonchier film at the beginning were. Okay, so that's just uh, an analogy to see if I can kind of um, set up the uh, or another way of expressing the target of my argument. Okay. Okay. So. This is where we transition into what I described as the somewhat more kind of technical phase of the argument. Okay, so um, just to kind of prefigure um, the phases of this part of the paper, these are the things that I'm going to move through. So I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about Richard Walheim and his notion of seeing in a twofoldness. I'm sure many of you are uh, very familiar with this already. Then I'm going to talk about some ideas from George Wilson, who talks specifically about film, and does so in partly by reference to Vorheim's arguments about seeing in, in the context of painting. Then there will be a digression uh, into the work of uh, Kendall Walton. And, well, there won't be part four. I can say that with confidence, or at least not, not in the... Um, not in the paper proper. I mean, if people are interested in that last bit, this is some very recent work by a colleague of mine, Michael Newell, who's revisited these arguments and has his own particular kind of spin on them. But I think it's going to be um, uh, trying too much uh, to, uh, to try and um, um, cram that into the body of the paper as well. So I just kind of note that along the way. Okay. So, to begin with, Vorheim and seeing in. So, uh, why am I why am I making reference to this? Broadly speaking, the project here, or my argument is, is that we can have the best, the clearest understanding of the way filmic representation works, filmic depiction works, by setting it in the context of a robust uh, theory of depiction in general. Okay, and I think Richard Vorheim in my own view, still offers one of the, one of the best uh, that's been articulated over the last 30 or 40 years. So that's why I'm going to set that up as the kind of, as it were, base of operations right, for, the, for the account that I want to offer. Okay, so what does Wolheim mean by uh, seeing in? So seeing in is Wolheim's characterization of what it is for us to um, uh, see uh, objects in a depiction. Okay? And he contrasts seeing in with seeing face to face. Okay? So it's very important to 
Borheim that there is a strong and basic contrast between the kind of experience of seeing you're having right now of whatever you're looking at in this room, me or whatever else, okay, and the kind of experience of seeing objects, a space, figures, whatever it is, that you have when you look at, uh, in his arguments, paintings, but I would argue um, photographic and filmic representations as well. And he says that seeing in is, uh, at root, a natural ability. Right? So in his book, Painting as an Art, he talks initially about the fact that we can see objects in, for example, frosty windows, clouds, knots of wood. Right? That for whatever uh, either evolved or uh, accidental, either, either an adaptive or a byproduct of evolutionary processes, we've, we've got this um, perceptual capacity. Right? to have the experience of seeing objects in two-dimensional marked differentiate or two-dimensional surfaces in which we seem to see three-dimensional objects. So depiction, right, the kind of, the kind of wide, the, the, the cultural practice of depiction, roughly speaking, beginning with painting and ending with uh, CGI representations, some such story, right? That's essentially a story of the technological exploitation and development of something which is at root a kind of natural capacity. Right? So the painting is uh, one of the first technologies we have which exploits and develops that ability to see in two-dimensional surfaces three-dimensional objects. Now, at the heart of his account of seeing in, which is his account of uh, the nature of depiction, is the notion of twofoldness. Twofoldness. What is this claim? It's very important for, for Wolheim that when we have the experience of seeing a three-dimensional three scene in a two-dimensional surface, that we have at one and the same time an experience of what he calls the recognitional and the configurational aspects of that depiction. What he means by that is we see the represented scene, we see something depicted, but we also have an awareness of the surface which is giving us or creating the depiction. Okay? So here's a quote where he expresses this idea. He says, recognition and configuration are two aspects of a single experience that I have, two aspects that are distinguishable but also inseparable. They are two aspects of a single experience, they are not two experiences. Now, um, you might say, okay, is this, is this a difference without a distinction? Two aspects of a single experience rather than two, you know, they're, they're distinguishable but they're not, but they're also inseparable. What the easiest way to understand, I think, the emphasis in Warheim's theory and the notion of twofoldness is to contrast it with Gombrich's theory of the way depiction works. So this is Gombrich's um, famous way, or one of, one, of, one of his ways of articulating 
his idea of how the picture works. According to Gombrich, the art historian, we don't have a twofold experience. Right? We have a kind of oscillating experience. So we can only either at one moment see what is depicted, or we can snap out of that and see the representational surface. But according to Gombrich, we precisely don't have that twofold experience of the two things together. Okay? And this is the figure that he uses to, to, to metaphorically make that point, right? the famous duck rabbit figure. So according to Gombrich, we can see the duck or the rabbit, but we can't see the duck and the rabbit simultaneously. And by analogy, he says, you can either see the three-dimensional three scene, or you can see the design on the surface, but you can't have your cake and eat it. You can't have the two things together. Now, according to Warheim and many others, that analogy fails. I'm not going to go into detail as to why it fails. Again, we can do that in the discussion if people want me to. I'm just noting this to kind of explain what, why the emphasis is it as is in Warheim's theory. Okay? It's a contrast to uh, what was the kind of reigning, probably the most influential theory uh, at the point that Warheim was developing his own account of depiction. Okay, so back to the quote. Okay, so um, let's just look at a couple of examples to see how, how this um, might play itself out in relation to film. So here are some stills from the beginning of North by Northwest. And Hitchcock very helpfully uh, has provided a kind of exercise demonstrating, <laughs> uh, one could say, uh, the idea of twofoldness. So if you've seen this sequence, you're, what you might remember, it begins as a kind of abstract pattern which kind of gradually realizes itself on the screen. So these kind of vertical and horizontal lines sort of appear in an animated fashion, the titles begin to come up, and then there's a dissolve which takes us from the grid, right, to this, I'm not sure how clear that is, but that's the side of a New York building with the traffic reflected on it, right? So the point is you move from what is an abstract design, step by step, to a depicted scene, okay? Now, my claim, which is a claim, so to speak, in the spirit of Warheim, but transferring it to film. Right? Warheim never talks about film, to my knowledge. It's entirely focused, I think, on, on painting. But I'm saying this goes for this goes for film as well, standardly anyway. Okay, so the, as well, the paradigm, paradigmatic experience of a filmic image is one in which we have this twofold dual awareness of that which is represented while we also are aware of the, um, uh, the configurational features right, on the screen which allow us to have that seeing in experience. Okay. Um, now, uh, another little kind of um, uh, tributary here. Um, uh, there's another sense in the case of film in which we can talk about twofold awareness, which is not strictly Warheim's, okay, but which I think you know um, is interesting on its own terms. 
if anything, only consolidates the sense in which we can talk about filmic representation as having this twofold character. So, twofoldness in Wolheim's sense is about the relationship between the two dimensional surface and the experience of seeing in it three dimensional objects. Right? So, that's twofoldness number one. I'm suggesting there's another level of twofoldness in our experience of certainly, as it were, ordinary mainstream films, and that's our twofold awareness of many of the performance, sorry, many of the figures, let's use that word, as at once actors, performers with whom we're often familiar, very familiar, as actors, and the characters they're realizing. Right? So one might say, again using the Hitchcock example, we have an experience at one and the same time of Roger Thornhill, the character, being configured, to borrow Warhol's word, right, by the features of Cary Grant, the star. Okay? So I stress, that is not quite Warhol's notion, strictly speaking, right? but I'm saying it's um, a legitimate extension of it, okay? which gives us a second way in which our, our experience of film is, I'm arguing, standardly a twofold one. Okay, um, and I may come back to um, to that idea later on in the talk. Now, let's say a little bit more about Vorheim's account of seeing in. It's important to acknowledge that he does allow for the idea that there can be kind of like variable emphasis. On either the recognitional recognitional part of the experience, right? the thing depicted in the image, or on the other hand, the configurational part of it. Right? So the features of the two-dimensional surface which enable you to have that seeing experience. So if we go back to that Hitchcock image, we can certainly say that at the beginning of the film, Hitchcock is very eager to kind of play up the configurational dimension because he's giving you this abstract grid which briefly overlays right, the building that we see. So it's really playing up the fact that, oh, I'm seeing this three-dimensional building by virtue of this kind of grid of lines and colors and forms that we see. Okay, so um, Vorheim allows for the fact that, that um, uh, twofoldness, let's put it this way, isn't, you know, one homogenous thing. There, there are various, it's a space of possibility in which artists can kind of move around. But it's kind of bounded by, you know, the, um, the necessity that somehow uh, awareness of both seeing in and of the surface are both somehow present. Um, and I think it's implicit in his argument that there's, there's a kind of, if you like, there's an evaluative implicit claim here, which is that there's a kind of sweet spot, right, where awareness uh, of the two things is kind of uh, balanced, you see what I'm saying, so that we're powerfully aware of what is depicted and aware, okay, of how that experience uh, is being created for us. And he makes the related claim that um, uh, 
although there is this kind of um, space of variation, right? So, so the artists and filmmakers can, can move towards the two poles. Um, that at the two extremes, uh, there's a kind of instability, right? So, if, if again going back to a Hitchcock example, if Hitchcock sort of started with that bottom image, right, a representational depictive image of the New York building, and sort of progressively abstracted it, there would come a point where all you would be aware of would be uh, a, a two-dimensional surface. You see what I'm saying? Uh, if we reversed the sequence. Um, and similarly, he says, um, uh, if all we kind of become preoccupied with is um, the imagining of the depicted scene, we'll end, end up in a project of what he calls imaginative visualizing. Do you see what I'm saying? Detached from the way the surface of the painting or the film is guiding your perception and your experience. Okay, um, I won't dwell further on the, uh, that, that final claim that, that I already have. Again, we can, we can come back to it if we want to. Let's move on to George Wilson. Okay, so Warheim talks principally, uh, almost exclusively, about painting and re related forms of still depiction. George Wilson is a major theorist of filmic representation. And as I say, what, what, uh, one of the things that's characteristic about his approach to this question is that he, he, he uses Warheim as a point of contrast. So he kind of refers explicitly and implicitly to what Warheim says about painting by way of theorizing how photographic and filmic, filmic representation works. Now the quote that I'm about to run through um, uh, is from a book from 1986. But lest anyone thinks that's a horribly out of date thing to be quoting, an unreasonable, well, you see, this audience would never be so crass as to think such a thing, but I have been. <laughs> I have given versions of this paper where, where people have said things like, so you're, you're talking about this stuff from the 70s and the 80s, like, haven't we moved on since then? I mean, you know, heaven forfend that these people had references to Aristotle. Can't obviously couldn't cope for that. Um, but the, 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 the important point to note here is, is that this is a brand new book by Wilson in which these arguments are re-articulated. Okay, so it's still part of his current thinking, even though the primary quotation that I'm going to make reference to is from that work in the 1980s. Okay, so this is what Wilson has to say about filmic representation, which he characterizes in terms of its transparency. Okay. He says, the projected screen image contains a vast wealth, wealth of diversified visual information within a two-dimensional surface that is apparently unworked and relatively untextured. Viewing a comparably realistic painting of the same scene, there's the implicit reference to Wolheim, a viewer's attention tends to oscillate between an inspection of the items pictured and a scrutiny of the handling of the paint upon the canvas. The painting's facture 
It's the ever-present mark of the agency that produced it. FUTSA facture, in case you're not familiar with that term, is the kind of evidence of the work of the paint uh, and the brush on the canvas. In the standard photographic image, the visible facture is either eliminated or reduced to a minimum. The items photographed appear transparently. Okay. So the thrust of Wilson's argument is this. He says, Vorheim essentially has a good account of painting. Right? So to experience a representational painting is indeed to have that twofold experience where you see the marked canvas and you see the facture. You're aware of the working of the paint and the brush on the canvas as you see in whatever it depicts. That's the twofoldness. But he says, photographs and films don't work that way. They don't have that work surface. It's either eliminated or it's very minimal. And in that sense, what we have an experience of is simply seeing it. Right? So you might think of it as this. For Wilson, transparency is a one-fold experience. It doesn't have that important and strongly twofold character. So you might say that Wilson is contrasting seeing in, which he says is a good account of the way paintings work and work upon us, with seeing through, which he says is the correct analysis and description of the way photographs and films standardly work. I've gone through the, uh, the um, uh, comparison between Warheim's account and Gombrich, so I'll pass over that for now. Um, yeah, so just to underline the claim here, so these are two uh, portrait paintings by uh, British artist Maggie Hambling. So this, these would exemplify the kind of strong contrast with what Wilson is saying of photographic and filmic depiction. Right? So, George Milley, Derek Jarman. So the idea is, here is, you know, unavoidably, we're aware of all that facture, right? Right? Even in these horrible kind of low-resolution digital reproductions of these images, we see all those swirls of paint. You know, you can almost feel the globs of paint, right, on the canvas. Even as you're aware that, oh, that's George Milley, or oh, that's Derek Jarman, right? Um, so the claim is, well, that's good for painting, but films and photographs, standardly at least, don't have anything like that character. Instead, we see through them rather than seeing in them. So for Wilson, transparency is uh, unmediated, or the impression of unmediated visual, and we might also say auditory, although that's a bit of my emphasis today, access to the fictional world. So I would call that phenomenological transparency. In other words, it's the claim that you know, the paradigm for the kind of experience that photographs and films give us is one where we have this minimal or even absent right, sense of there being something in which we are seeing something else. We just have the experience of seeing straight through it. And this is where we hit our digression 
into a little bit of the work of Kendall Wharton, um, who, as I'm sure you're all aware, is very famous for a set of arguments about the transparency of photographs and films. The important thing to note here is it's not the same concept of transparency. You might get the two confused because Wilson develops his argument partly by reference to Walton, but it's really a very different um, uh, uh, idea that's being argued for and there is no simple relationship of implication or entailment, I think, between, between the two things. So very quickly, Walton's argument about the transparency of photographs is a kind of metaphysical argument about whether uh, the visual experiences that photographs deliver for us count as instances of seeing. Right? So when you see a photograph of your grandmother, Walton's famous claim is that you are having a visual experience, you are seeing right, uh, your grandmother in some extended but nevertheless real sense of the notion of seeing. Right? So photographs for Walton are to be compared with devices like microscopes and telescopes. Right? So just as you can see the moon by looking through a telescope, you're seeing an object which is not usually available to your uh, perception, um, at least not in such detail. So photographs are a kind of aid to vision. So that's transparency in Walton's sense. Um, but as I say, it's quite a separate notion from the notion of transparency which Wilson develops. That's Michael Newell. Let's get that. Okay. So, I'm trying to head us into the last part of the paper. So, we've seen Vorheim's account of seeing in as a theory of the way paintings work. We've seen how Wilson tries to set up a theory of photographic and filmic representation, which takes off from Vorheim's account of painting, but which says that precisely the films and photographs are different in central and important ways. Now I want to dwell on some problems with what Wilson has to say about the purported transparency in his sense, not Walton's sense, of photographs and films. So the first problem is this. Thinking of paintings, first of all, um, there's enormous variation in the degree of painterly facture or texture used by different individual artists or different schools of painting. Right? So not every painting has the look of those, those Maggie Handling paintings. Right? So the worry here is that um, there may be some overgeneralization going on based on particular schools or types of painting across the whole of that medium, okay, which aren't really legitimate. Now moving our attention to the way films work, the thought would be uh, parallel to that, right? that there might be uh, 
individual filmmakers and schools of filmmaking which seek to minimize whatever the filmic equivalents of facture are, right, to maximize the impression of unmediated visual access to what's being represented. But it varies enormously across individual filmmakers and schools of filmmaking. So again, there's a worry here about overgeneralizing from a particular um, stylistic mode to the medium as a whole. Okay, um, so, uh, so, well, let me just pick out one of these other worries here. Um, okay, now let, 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 me, uh, let me dwell on this, these examples first of all. So, um, uh, Wilson claims that um, our, um, our standard experience of photographs and films is one such that um, uh, the facture of a painting being absent, we have this impression of unmediated visual uh, access. Now, I've got these stills up here to direct our attention to what you might call the equivalence of facture in the context of filmmaking. Okay? So, we've got overexposure on the top right hand side in contrast effects derived from the film stock. This is a freeze frame used in um, Ocean's 12. Um, so uh, that kind of blur effect okay, is arguably a kind of another um, example of filmic facture. We've got focus effects here. right? So that's a still. And if I just Click this. Uh, can we put the lights down, Martin, briefly? Right. We should see in the bottom right hand corner something in motion. Right, okay, good. Brief one, pop it back up. So, um, the point will be there that something as simple as shifts of focus or racking of focus within a shot, okay, even though that that's something um, which is familiar to us from ordinary visual experience, once it gets represented in the film, okay, it has a quite distinct phenomenology. So to see the focus shifting there, right, as represented in the film, doesn't feel like the way shifting our focus in ordinary visual experience fields. Right? So again, I'm offering that up as some kind of rough analogy with the way in which facture operates in painting. Right? So the idea is to amass all of the elements in filmic representation which um, uh, continually draw our attention to the fact that we're in the presence of um, a representation, uh, and that it's not simply giving us um, uh, unmediated visual access to the depicted scene. And to that extent, I'm saying it still falls under Volheim's more general account uh, of representation. Okay. Right. Again, I'm skipping the, uh, the Dylan examples for time, but fun so we can come back to those in the in the, uh, in the discussion um, 
Here's another kind of equivalent of uh, facture. This is easy to see when an image is moving, but I've only got stills here. Grain. So simply the grain of film stock. Okay. So it's easy to see when the image is moving because it's in the nature of grain that the particles change, right, from frame to same frame. So um, you might have noticed, for example, in that uh, extract from the uh, the 40s film Daisy Kenyon that the whole thing is characterized by this kind of gently shimmering quality, which is the kind of grain right, of the film stock. So that's another you know, uh, analog with painterly facture. It's another um, um, feature of the artifactuality of the medium, which is kind of there, omnipresent in our experience of filming images. And there's the grain, even well, you can't really see it in this light, but there's a lot of grain uh, in, in that image there. Okay. Another factor along similar lines, what I'm calling, for want of a better word, compositionality. Right? So in other words, the way um, filmmakers will, again, uh, play up the artifactuality of the image and um, as it will work against its transparency uh, by virtue of the blocking of figures and the position of the camera. Right? So that you are at once seeing into the depicted space, but you also have this very strong sense of geometrical form. Right? And this image from the Fritz Lang film, which is precisely the kind of experience of twofoldness that Warheim is interested in and claims is typical of, of painting. So in essence, my argument is this is this is paradigmatically true for films as well, not just for paintings. And thereby I'm disagreeing with what Wilson claims to be paradigmatic of filmic representation, which is this idea of seeing through the image in a highly transparent way. Okay, right, let me just show you one last example and uh, make a few remarks about it once you've seen it. Uh, and, uh, and I think that, that will probably do. So, this is very close to the beginning of the Michael Haneke film Cachet, hidden from a few years ago. Um, before I show it, the only thing to say is that this shot that we're seeing, right, this is almost the beginning of the film, the only thing I've cut out here is about a minute right, of the same shot which has titles on it. Right? So I've sort of, I'm starting the clip here just after the last title has disappeared. Okay, so.
dans un cercle aussi peu importe. Qu'est-ce qu'il y a Je t'ai appelé à toi, il n'a rien vu. Et euh, non, il n'est pas là, il est en La cassette fait plus de deux heures. So let me just um, use that example to make a, a final couple of uh, observations. So um, uh, that's an example, um, or that example exploits something which Rob Hopkins uh, has referred to in some recent articles as collapsed seeing in. Collapsed seeing in, right? So the idea is, is that until the end of the sequence, where the videotape starts rewinding, you don't take yourself to be seeing in a picture or seeing of this, uh, simply a street. Oh, sorry, start that again. You do take yourself to be seeing in simply this Parisian street scene. At the end of the sequence, when we start to see the videotape, evidence that a videotape is being rewound, we then suddenly realize, aha! There's another tier of representation here. Right? So I'm seeing in a videotape which is, enables me to see in the streets. Okay? But until you get that evidence that it's a video representation, those two tiers of representation collapse into a single layer. Okay? Um, and he's made um, um, some larger arguments about significance of collapsing in in relation to um, uh, filmic representation in general in relation to what I talked about earlier when I talked about um, the twofoldness of um, filmic representations of character. Right? So the idea is that films standardly work with two tiers not, not quite in the way this example does, but by first of all, theatrically, so to speak, representing characters through performance, that's the first tier of representation, and then the second tier of representation is the filming of that theatrical performance. Okay, so there's a couple of ways in which those arguments about the two-tiered nature of filmic representation have relevance for the paper as a whole. 
But the most important point I want to make with this sequence is the following one. So I think it's, it's, it's part of our experience of that sequence, and clearly part of the design of the sequence, I think, that we'll experience a kind of jolt. Right? So the duration of the shock is really, shot is really important. Remember, there's a whole minute of that before where I started it. So you're allowed to kind of like get used to the fact that you're simply watching this kind of rather empty Parisian street scene, not much is happening, but you kind of sink into that kind of attitude towards the shot before, bang, suddenly you're given evidence that it's a video recording rather than simply straightforward filming of the street scene. Now, one way in which that could easily be construed, the jolt, is that there's, uh, the jolt involves, as it were, being bounced out of this transparent experience on Wilson's account. Right? So you're just having this unmediated visual experience of the depicted scene, and then suddenly you're lurched back into an awareness of the depicted surface. I don't think that's the right description of what happens. Throughout the entire scene, right, you have an experience of seeing in. The jolt occurs just because that, so to speak, invisible middle tier, the fact that you're not just seeing in to the street, you're seeing into uh, the video representation of the street, but that's been obscured because the edges of the monitor are missing. That's the jolt. Right? So there isn't a move, the, the jolt doesn't derive from transparency to uh, awareness that you're looking at a depiction. Okay? It, it arises from the sudden sort of surfacing of that hidden tier of representation. Right? So that's a rather different explanation uh, of the force uh, of that opening sequence. Okay, so um, I think I'll draw a line under it there and um, hope that that's engaged you. So thank you.